Welcome to the Culture Design Show, where we feature conversations with leaders and thinkers who are passionate about culture and design. Now, let's get started with the show. This podcast is brought to you by Culture Design Studio. This is where I help creative organizations transform their cultures from being controlling to being collaborative. Now, here are some of the things that I've learned. Your creative talent demands a co-creative culture in order to produce their best work. But there's a problem. Now, let's see if you can recognize some of these signs. There's no framework to move your culture forward. You have high turnover and low morale. There's increasing toxicity across all levels. There's team engagement and satisfaction that are on the decline. There's a misalignment between the employer brand and the employee experience. And there's poor communication about expectations and values. So if you want to learn more about how I provide facilitation and coaching for your creative team, reach out to me at culturedesignstudio.com. Our guest today is Phil Burgess, Chief People and Operations Officer at C-Space, a global customer agency which helps companies focus on what really matters to customers and what most effectively drives business growth. Phil's leadership has been recognized as one of management today's top 30 agents of change for championing inclusion and equality in business. Phil, welcome to the Culture Design Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you coming on. We met the other day on Zoom, as we are today, just to kind of get to know each other a bit. And I was fascinated about the story, your journey, and also about sort of the evolution of C-Space. But I want to first start, if you can, if you can share with us your professional journey. How has that evolved over the years to you know, bring you to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. I, um, I, so you can probably tell I'm from um, I'm from South London uh, in the UK. So I grew up I grew up in the Middle East um, in Doha, Qatar uh, for mm. my early years, and and then grew up in South London. Um, I um, my first taste of professional life was actually at university. I was studying German and business, and I took on an internship in my summer. Um, as a door-to-door salesperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they told me it was one of the hardest things that you could do during your summer and it would make me really marketable. So I, I relocated to California to a town called Modesto oh, yeah. um, near Sacramento. And I spent a summer selling encyclopedias door to door to American families. Um, so I, I worked 81 hours a week oh from gosh. eight in the morning till 9.30 in the evening, 100% commission. Um, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I, at the time I was like, I'm never going to do this again. Um, dealing with the rejection and, and, um, but it taught me so much. I, I actually ended up doing it all four summers through university. Um, I then was offered a job with Procter and Gamble, um, as partly as a result of, of, of that internship. Mm. And then much to my dad and mum's horror, turned it down and, and carried on selling books, um, for wow. another three years after wow. university. So wow. my dad was horrified that he had helped me get to university and I was <laughs> staying in door to door sales, but really what I learned from it was so valuable from a, I guess, a self-management point of view yeah. and also leading a managing team. So I, I recruited a 50 person organization. Um, I used to recruit at Oxford, Cambridge and London universities and Warwick. And we used to recruit students during the year and then train them up and work with them out on the, on the book field, we wow. would call it. 
Um, and my job was to motivate them and stop them quitting when they didn't sell anything their first few weeks. And that taught me a lot about leadership. And, mm. and, and I guess I, I found a passion for building teams and building organizations. But after, after seven years of doing that, I, I wanted something a little more intellectually stimulating as well. Mm -hmm. So I kind of fell into the market research industry in London in a, in a cool little agency. Um, and um, my job was to phone up companies in the private sector and break down doors and try and get research briefs and creative briefs. So I would cold call people and, and pitch at them and try and get a meeting. And then that sort of took me into consulting and actually doing the work in, in a sort of a sell and do model. And I, yeah. I sort of broke into consumer clients like um, Jaguar Land Rover and Starbucks and um, various CPG companies. Mm -hmm. And then after, I, I mean, that takes me through to about 2010. And um, I guess I was getting a bit frustrated with the impact we were having. So we were doing great research, but but um, sometimes this, the, the, the reports looked great, but they weren't driving change in organizations. And, and I met um, a, a guy at a conference, Doran, who was um, the managing director of a small co-creation company called Promise in mm. Soho. And they were founded on the, this notion of co-creation. If, if you work with customers, yeah they can be creative and the company's getting ahead of the companies that actually co-create with their customers instead of like just coming up with ideas and testing them on customers. So yeah. I, I, I worked with them and we set up a digital division of online communities for, for brands, um, helping them understand their customers. And, and then a couple of years later, that company were, we were a small scrappy startup and, and we were bought by um, Omnicom, the holding company mm -hmm. and clashed together with Communispace, a big market research company in Boston. And I guess that sort of takes me to where I am today. So we went, we went through a really interesting phase of merging two companies together. We had been, we'd been arch enemies really. Like we would pitch <laughs> against each other, pointing out each other's flaws. So it was an interesting challenge as a leader to bring two companies together when we had, yeah, we'd spent a long time pointing out why the other company wasn't great. Then um, we rebranded as C-Space and, mm. and that's the business I work for today. So I've been with the company for 10 years, but I feel like I've had 10 different, um, four different roles Yeah, on the client practitioner side and, and then actually uh, running our London office. And now this, this chief people role in Boston. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, there's so much to, to even dissect, even from what you just shared about your journey. And I, and I love, it seems to me, and I may be totally off, but it seems to me as, as I look at your journey and as you've had, you've gone to, uh, you know, to had different experiences at different companies or different roles. Um, I question I want to ask is how much has frustration with the status quo driven you? I think quite a lot. Like I, I, I'm definitely someone who, who is motivated by change. Like I get, I get, I'm, I'm Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP. I get my energy from people and, and I like to drive change and have an impact on people. So I don't think I could work for an organization that wasn't in the throes of change. Yeah. And I know that's a, it's a double-edged sword because sure. it can be stressful. Yeah. And, uh, but I think, yeah, frustration with um, not not being able to drive change in those businesses from a research point of view, frustration from the way brands and companies work with consumers and the fact that it seems outdated just to not include them in the process. Mm -hmm. And I guess right the way through to the kind of work we're doing right now, how do we build a more diverse, inclusive, equitable business and, and all of the racial injustice that we're seeing around the world? Like, how do we drive change for our organizations? How do we drive change outside? That does drive me. 
and it frustrates me because sure. I can't drive as much change as yeah. I as I want as fast as I want. But it's been a red thread definitely through my career. Yeah, and I I, I kind of sense that because I, I I that resonates with me in my own work in terms of wanting to drive change. And I think uh, that the the sort of the dark side of that sort of lens is frustration, and and it does bring in. Um, uh, some angst and, and things like that. And, uh, but the, I, I've always believed. And when I even examine that in myself is that frustration only exists in the, in the hearts and minds of those who are optimistic in terms of, you know, if you weren't optimistic, you wouldn't be frustrated. You're optimistic because you see a future that can be better and you you're driven to, to help drive, uh, whatever community, whatever team, whatever organization to help get them there. And I think, uh, so that was one thing I just wanted to ask because I, I sensed a little bit of that in, in, uh, in your story of wanting to impact change and wanting to be, you know, to, to make some significant contribution. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I, I mean, a lot of it does take, it does take me back to my very early experiences selling books door to door. I, I mean, my dad at the time, I did really well academically at school. Uh, so the challenge of this being the hardest thing you could do and my dad telling me that yeah. he thought I would be back two weeks after I got on the plane yeah. sort of drove me to prove him wrong. Yeah. And then, um, and then I, I think, yeah, it's definitely been something that's just sort of pushed, pushed me through. What I'd love to hear as well, maybe you can share with us a little bit more about what it looks like when you say a co-creation agency and co-creating with clients co and helping those clients co-create with their customers, share with us a little bit more about what that looks like. Because I, I, I know that I, I'm sensing that more and more agencies are having that realization that clients want to co-create with them and they're no longer satisfied with these agencies doing the work for them, but rather want them to do the work with them. So give us some, some, a little bit more ideas about what that co-creation looks like. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting question because I think we've been on a bit of an evolution over the last decade. So, I mean, if I start 10 years ago, back in sort of 2011, when I was working with Promise, uh, we were explicitly about co-creation. So I, I think we looked to the worlds of advertising and branding and innovation, and, and we saw um, organizations doing it through the sort of expert model yeah. where you get super bright people right. in a room. Yeah. They, they typically all do look the same, but coming up with ideas and then you go and test them on some consumers and consumers say, oh, change that. I like that. But but they haven't been involved in, in creating the, the, the product or the service or the idea or the insight the un, that underpins the communications campaign. And I guess our premise, and it was, it was set up by the, the founders of the company, Charles and Claire and Roy, um, their belief was like consumers can be creative and yeah. they can articulate their pains. They, they won't tell you what they want. I think some people always say, well, if you ask consumers what they want, they're not going to know. Right. And like if, if, if Steve Jobs had done that, right. we wouldn't have exactly. Apple. That's like the um, prime example. When you talk about asking customers for feedback, everybody thinks of that Steve Jobs quote is like, yeah. they don't know what they want. I'm going to tell them what they want. Yeah. And I think there's the other example around like Ford. If you'd ask people what they want, they would have said like a, fa a faster horse yeah. and we would never have had the car. But if you listen hard enough for the possibility, we talk about listening for possibility. People were not saying they wanted a horse. They wanted something faster. So the insight is speed. And that was what one of the things that led to the car. We, we would say the same. If you work with consumers and treat them as equals, as people with lives and passions and frustrations, and you 
um, involve them intellectually in, in the challenge, then they won't tell you necessarily the answer. You still need the creative process. You need the agency. You need the client team. Um, but they will tell you their pain point. Um, and, or they will tell you their passion. And that's what you can then tap into when you're developing the product or service with them. And sometimes they might give you the nugget that actually leads to the new idea. But more often than not, it's about enhanced consumer understanding. And, and I think as we've evolved as an agency, we've, we've moved away from the idea of pure co-creation to this notion of customer agency. Mm -hmm. And really, we're saying, like, if you work with your customers, and um, it's you can close the empathy gap between mm -hmm. what customers want and need and what you think they want and need. And the more you can close that gap by building relationships with them, by involving them in the process, whether it's through workshops or whether it's through market research or consulting with them, the, the more likely you are going to be successful with the product or service you develop. And if the consumers have been involved in the sessions with your executive team who are going to be signing off on budget and who need to understand whether or not they're going to move forward with a, a, a new program, um, buy into that is going to be um, speeded up so you can get to alignment quicker, which is really important in a world, the world we're living in today where the pace of change, like, I mean, look at what's happening right now. People need to be updating their strategy every other week. So yeah. how do you have that ongoing dialogue with customers to make sure that you're constantly staying in touch with what they really want? Now, you used a word there that I really appreciate. In fact, it drives a lot of my work as well, and that is alignment. Why is alignment, you know, when I think of all the, the parties that could be possibly in alignment or in misalignment is you've got the individual contributors, the individual employees, you've got teams, you have departments, you have, you know, the organization itself, you have the customer. And then in some cases, like in the CPG, you have customers, but then you have the consumers. Why is that alignment so important uh, to, to make sure that we are actually on the same page, wanting the same thing versus having some dissonance or misalignment? I mean, I guess the lack of alignment is what leads to the, the messiness. And, and I mean, we're all human. So when we're trying to make decisions around how to move forward on anything, whether it's a new product or service, we all bring our self into that. We bring our own agendas, our own biases, our own career motivations. Um, and if there's not... If, if you, if you, I guess we, we talk about aligning around the customer because it can actually bring that alignment together. Mm. So you can, you can kind of get away with the, maybe you've got the ego of the creative agency and then you've got the, the ego of the digital agency and they both want to be the hero and, and create the impact. And then you have the project owner who, who wants to be successful and might be looking to please their boss who will be worried about pleasing their boss. If you can actually align around the customer viewpoint and say, well, this is what customers need. This is what that 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 starts to sort of say. Okay, we're we're all aligning around this insight. So, I mean, it, 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 when it works, it feels like you should save money, you should make quicker decisions, and you should grow and be more successful because customers will actually want what you're creating. Mm -hmm. uh, does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You, you mentioned as we were talking before that uh, as you kind of uh, you took over, I forget what part of it, whether it was the the the, the U.S. division or the the London division. Of, of the company. And you were, when you were leading that office, you weren't leading that by yourself. You actually had uh, a, a kind of a co-leader. And, and uh, what are some things that you learned about that, that experience of co-leading an organization uh, division uh, with another person? 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was one of the most fun times of my career. The three years that I was co-leading London, I was joint managing director with a with a, a great guy called Felix, um, and we're both still with the business in different roles now. Um, but I mean, the context was uh, the previous managing director had resigned, and um, to be honest, I think our boss looked at different options, and <laughs> and we both had complementary personalities, and I and I think we were a bit of an experiment. So. Uh. Like yeah. if, if you know Myers-Briggs, I'm, I, I've said I'm an ENFP, so I, I get my energy from being around people and talking and Felix is an INTJ. He, he gets his energy from like going off by himself and thinking. He's super conceptual, loves putting together decks. I'm happy jumping around and, and um, the idea of creating a deck kind of fills mm-hmm. me with horror. So we had very <laughs> complementary skills, but I, I, I remember when, when they made the announcement, because it all happened pretty fast. Um, I remember there was a lot of nervousness in the business and between us around, okay, is it, is this going to be like a double headed monster? Like, are we going to get played off against each other? Are people going to have, like, how are we going to align around what is important to the business? And, and I remember we met Felix is from Germany and we met at the airport as he flew back before we had our first meeting with the company as these two sort of, I don't know, relatively young guys who'd never run a a, a business before. Um, and we were like, what are we going to do to make this work? And, and we talk about relationships being the source of results. That's one of our key principles in our business. So we sort of sat down and we said like, what, what, what are the reasons this is going to fail? Like what, what could we do that would mess this up? Mm-hmm. So we, we, um, I've written an article about it on LinkedIn, if anyone's interested, but we, we, we sort of developed what we now talk about as our pact. And it was things like, we will disagree in private, but mm. we will present a united front mm. in public. Yeah. If we ever get to the point where one of us wants to opt out, the other person will be the first to know. Mm. Um, we, so we, we sort of, I guess we co-created this, this yeah. little pact, um, which, which dictated how we showed up in the business. Um, and then, and then we really worked on that relationship. Like there were times in the early days where I remember a time and we, we can laugh about it now, but at the time it was painful. Like I, I missed something out of a slide deck and it was one of the early presentations that we did. And Felix sent me this note that evening, um, sort of pointing out uh, how he felt let down by the fact I'd messed something up. Um, and I remember it really cut, uh, I felt really cut up by this feedback mm-hmm. and I had a conversation with him and I was like, look, feel free to always give me feedback if it's constructive, but please don't send it to me at night because I'm mm. going to lie, lie yeah. there all night thinking about yeah. the feedback. But if I do something like that, just grab me in the moment and tell me. And, and I think having those moments where we just coached each other on how to work together really, really helped us show up the right way in the business. Right. And I think that uh, that's probably even some, definitely some lessons learned about not only how things can be handled between two co-leaders, but how just anybody on a, on a given team that just to have that openness, that transparency and, and, and being able to, you know, share some hard truths um, in both ways. Uh, I think that's such a, a model in itself of, you know, even being able to do that pact ahead of time to have the forethought. And maybe it wasn't even so much forethought as like, oh my gosh, how are we going to make this work? We, we have to be disciplined and intentional about this and which was great. And I think many, you know, many either new leaders or leaders in new roles or startups and things like that can really learn about, uh, um, that, that just intentionality of of doing things. I think that's, that's Mm -hmm. something that's awesome. And that's a great word. I mean, I learned a huge amount 
from Felix, and I, I still do today, but he he was a great believer in intentionality. Mm-hmm. So everything we do, yeah. w- the way we present ourselves in meetings, the, the way that we uh, craft a message out to the business, who speaks, uh, mm-hmm. like how we play the part, how do we, we talked about uh, not not playing to type. So if I would, like, it would have been easy for me to deliver the softer messages and yeah. Felix to deliver the tough news. So we sort of swap roles mm-hmm. in meetings. So I think being intentional about leadership and being intentional about the culture you want to create in an organization has been a, a, a sort of a driving force and something I've learned over the years. If you're not being intentional, you're probably unintentionally creating something. And Felix would always say, what are the unintended consequences of yes. what we're about to do? Yep. And that helps you think, so, oh, okay, yeah, like this, we're, we're going to go ahead now. Yeah, but not every bit of, not every challenge, not every problem, not every bit of dysfunction is the result of intentional actions. And I think it's that neglect to consider certain things, that intentionality to think about those unintended co- consequences is is uh, is a powerful thing. And I, and I think that's, if there's probably challenges in the world and in business, it's because we just didn't think it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. You mentioned, uh, at least on the website, you know, when I look through the C-Space website, there's a, a portion in there on the homepage that says, we're working to humanize business. What does that look like? Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's definitely an aspirational mission that we have. Um, I, I see it in two ways. Like One is working with our clients yep. to, to build empathy with their customers to make sure that they are... Um, developing campaigns and products and services that resonate and make their customers' worlds better. The other, I think about internally, so how can we build a more human business? And, and given my role as, as chief people officer and as MD previously, it, a lot of this is like when we're thinking about our culture, when we're thinking about how we treat our people, how do we treat them in a more human fashion. I I think it's hard because like trying to codify what it means to be human Mm -hmm. is, is challenging. And, um, it's a thought exercise that I've, I've never really done formally, but I, Mm -hmm. um, think about a lot, like it's easy and it's a trigger for me when some people might say, well, you're being too human. (laughs) I think what they're saying is like, you're being too soft Mm. or it's all about compassion and caring for people and making them happy. And there's some truth in that. But I think being human is also about being kind. Being kind doesn't mean being soft. Being kind might mean being kind enough to give someone some negative feedback that's going to help them with their performance. Being kind enough might be letting someone go from a role that isn't right for them or the people they're working with. Um, Being human is sort of embracing the messiness and ambiguity of business and the, the, the... as humans, we're all fallible. We all mess stuff up. But being human is kind of admitting that and owning it and saying like, yeah, as leaders, we messed this up. We made the wrong decision. Like we're not perfect. And 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 something I, I strive to do, and I don't always get it right because we all have egos, but is, is to sort of model that and talk about like, we're all works in progress. Like our business yeah. is a work in progress. Yeah. Like our strategy changes, the world is changing. I would love to know all the answers, but I don't have them. And I think on my best day, I I own it. And on my worst day, I'm trying to give everyone the answers and people are like, you don't have them. And then they lose confidence. So it's, 
Does that make sense? It makes total sense. In fact, I'm glad that the second half of your answer included, you know, the messiness, uh, embracing the messiness of, of just of just business of life uh, where there is ever any sort of human being involved in any situation. It is going to be messy. And I think too many times we try to present a pristine uh, picture of how things are, whether it's our marketing to our customers, whether it's uh, marketing to potential talent coming on board, whether it's, you know, internal communications and all of these different things. But the reality is, especially now, the era that we're living in right now, we're, we're, we're talking in the middle of August, beginning of August to 2020, it's messy. We don't have all the answers. And I think, uh, I think being able to, being able to uh, say, you, you know, yes, uh, we have a direction. We're going to go forward in this direction, but we don't, you know, if, you know, this is based on what we know right now, or I, I like to sometimes talk about like, you, you know, if, if I, if I respond in, you know, in not the best way to a certain situation to own it and talk to my team or talk to my partners, whatever to say, Hey, I, I, I didn't do this right. I'm sorry. I'm trying to figure this out. I, I was wrong. Uh, can we, can we, uh, you know, can we move forward? So I think that the embracing the messiness of business is part of being human for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly something we're thinking about a lot as we deal with the impact of COVID, whether we're working in offices or at home, uh, uncertainty about whether schools are returning, um, having to sort of pivot our business strategy as to, to, to adapt to some of the economic sort of turmoil. We've got elections coming up in the States. We've got Brexit over in Europe, in, in, in London. Um, and I think we're all trained to, to, to want the next step and to get to closure and have the action plan and have the answer. And I mean, a lot of the work we're doing in our business right now is how do we help people deal with change and ambiguity and see it as that is part of the status quo now, mm -hmm. like the, the, the companies and the people that will be successful are those who are able to adapt and deal with change. The flip side is not letting yourself off the hook. And I'm, I'm guilty of this at times. Like, and that doesn't mean you can be fuzzy, uh, right. like it, but it might mean that you have to pivot more quickly. And, um, it's, it's definitely a challenge and attention because people want to know, well, what is the answer and what mm. is the plan? Uh, what are you going to do next week to, uh, uh, about racial injustice? Mm. And, and you, you can't promise change tomorrow. Yeah. So what are some of the top challenges that you're, you're addressing, or at least, you know, that are, are things that need to be dealt as in this snapshot of time, knowing that three, six months down the road, it may be something different, but what are you seeing as the top, say three, uh, areas of focus that, uh, you guys are looking to address? So there's a, I mean, there's a few things that are really front of mind for us at the moment. Um, I mean, one is front of mind partly because we we um, we paused our business yesterday for a day um, to to um, educate and inspire our team around around the themes diversity, equity, and inclusion. So like a lot of businesses, I think the events of the last sort of six weeks in the states have been a, a wake up call and a, and a realization that that things need to change. Um, we'd always taken pride in, in calling ourselves a, a progressive business. And then when you actually look at the makeup of our senior leadership teams and our business, um, we're not as diverse as we need to be. We don't mm -hmm. look enough like the customers that our clients are serving um, or the cities that we are part of. Um, so a big part of, of, of my role and a big push for us now and 
really for the next three years, because this is not going to happen overnight, yeah. is, is, is how do we build a truly diverse business and how are we tru- truly inclusive of all the, the different people within the business. So that's about psychological safety. Mm-hmm. That's about how we tap into people's talents. That's about how we build understanding. Um, so that's one, one big focus. Yeah. Um, another and uh, is uh, how we... I don't know. We, we sometimes talk about returning to work mm-hmm. uh, as if we haven't been working for the last 20 yeah, weeks yeah. during this pandemic. We're, really, we're thinking about um, it. It's not about returning to work or returning to the office. It's more about a reimagining of what work looks like as we yeah. emerge from this, yeah. if we emerge from this. And I think we, we started with like, well, when we go back or um, a return to the new normal or the return to office strategy, but really it's like, what does the new world of work look like? What's the the value proposition for our employees? Like what yeah. are they signing up to when they come to work for C-Space? And we're, we're thinking a lot as a team about how do we include our employees in working that out? And how do we make sure we don't go back to old paradigms? Like if we go back to the office, maybe we do two days a week in and three days a week out. I don't know. We're pushing ourselves to think if we considered ourselves a remote organization, what would that mean we would do differently from a technology point of view and from an HR policy stance? And how would we tap into different talent pools? So that's very much on my mind and how we how we make that big enough, but small enough to actually be a manageable challenge to solve. I would imagine that uh, this second, you know, what is returned back to work, back to the office again, however we want to call it. In fact, I've been having conversations with, with, you know, folks in your position at different agencies that are, that's, that's very much the top of mind of what does that look like? You know, a lot of us thought that we were going to go back into the office, you know, July, August, September. Now it looks like some point in 2021 in some cases. And, um, you know, they're so they're starting to look and I love the way you described as let's reimagine the value proposition of even the office or how we work. It you know, it's almost like going back to what you described earlier. Let's strip away all of the things that we thought it used to be before. It's almost like let's start from a whiteboard, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a zero sum budget, as they kind of call it, you know, just a, where we re, let's build what we believe is the value proposition for the office. You know, is it in fact where we actually do individual work? Yes, it can be, but it may, may be different now. Can we maybe go there to have collaboration uh, sessions? Mm-hmm. Can we go there to have all hands meetings? You know, rethinking it, because a lot of times I've heard folks that are, you know, in the perimeter offices with the windows, they're there in their office maybe once or twice a week because they're on the road so much, at least historically. Do they really need a dedicated space and all of these different things? And, you know, do we need the same amount of square foot uh, per person, you know, let's reevaluate that. There are some things that we can consider there. So definitely have seen a lot of conversation around that. And, um, uh, and, and that's pretty exciting to, to think about, but it's also stressful. I'm sure for, for folks in your situation, uh, that may not have had to reevaluate it from the ground up. Um, and then there's things like leases and things like that we have to think about. So I wanted to ask a little bit about, I know we talked about, uh, um, one of the things that I saw 
in just describing C-Space was that you folks were a glow, gold award winner for learning team of the year 2020. And I'd love to hear what are your guys' focus in terms of having a learning culture? We described some of those things already, I think, in terms of how you approach, you know, learning from uh, the good and bad, the ugly. But what are some some thoughts you have about just developing a learning culture? Uh, it's a big, it's a big question. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess one of the drivers for it was, um, I think we realized that we are a business. We, we, I think we thought we, when we rebranded, I think we thought we were going through a three-year transformation. Um, and then we probably declared victory a little too soon that we had transformed and the world outside is continuing to move at pace. And we realized that actually we're, we're in a constant state of transformation as we adapt. And I, I think as we're all experiencing this year, and I think what we what we started to realize, we've always been, we've always valued learning and personal development. And I think we realized that um, having a growth mindset and having uh, a culture where people are are constantly thinking about what can I do differently is important to innovation, um, and it's important to retention of staff, and it's important to our clients because if we're not learning and bringing new ideas to the table, they'll find someone else who is, and. Um, I mean, we, we really, we started our journey uh, two years ago. Again, we, we closed the office in July 2018 for a day and we held a, a, an all-staff day. for. We flew everyone in from our New York office and all of our remote staff and our San Francisco team. They all came to Boston for the day and we spent eight hours together building relationships and focusing on what it means to be a, a learning organization and having a growth mindset um, and uh, uh, and then um, that was sort of a scene setter. And partly it was, we, we then did a lot of work uh, sort of saying like, what are the barriers and drivers to learning? So we, we, had, we held workshops where we were saying like, what gets in the way of learning at C-Space? And what we saw was it was a mixture of culture and mindset things. So mm -hmm. um, a mixture of um, operational and process things. So I spend all my time doing timesheets or I don't know where to access the technology or I don't know what tool does that. So it was a mixture of operational and culture things. And, and that helped us sort of say, okay, we're going to try and build this culture again in a really intentional way uh, through different mm -hmm. incremental means. So it was simple stuff. Like what I heard was like, we don't value learning mm. because we don't have a timesheet code that allows me to mm. track learning and development. Wow. So that was a quick win. We just added yeah. a timesheet code yeah. and then we could quantify it. But they were like, if you don't measure it, clearly leadership don't value it. Mm. Um, and <laughs> then we were like, well, learning is all about being in the classroom. And then it's like, and, but actually learning happens on the job. So that helped us think about like our, our training for reporting managers and um, help people think about, well, learning is not just when you're in the room with an external trainer. Learning mm. is every day. And so we, it was a series of little incremental things that we, that we did to try to help people just understand that this, this is another intentional part of our culture where we're building. Uh, as we're nearing the end of our conversation, I'd love to hear what are, what are some things that we haven't talked about that you're particularly passionate about uh, and that love, you know, chatting about and discovering with other people? I don't know. I do, I do spend a lot of my time, like, uh, just, just thinking about how, how you build culture, how you build culture in organizations, like the role, the role of values, the, the role, how do you, how do you strike that right balance between sort of having a, a set of corporate values that people feel ownership over without imposing them on people. Um, that's, that's something we've done a lot of 
work around we co-created our values at cspace and yeah. that's that's definitely a, a passion area of mine um so. i mean one of the one other area which is a personal passion uh, outside of work but i'm interested in the the idea of the the power of the individual and the, the ability of an in- individual to trigger a ripple effect mm. so whether that's within an organization the actions of one person and how if you can role model a certain behavior or get others doing it, you can trigger that ripple effect, but also outside work. So I think on my mind right now is, um, is the, the impact we can have on our societies and on the environment and, and the the personal responsibility Mm -hmm. that we have to, to drive change. So, uh, like my wife and I were walking on the beach on new year's day, um, in our local town. And we found, uh, there was a load of litter blowing around, and uh, we have two small children and we picked up a bag, a plastic bag and we, we filled it with, with litter. And, um, when we got home that day, we were, we were kind of like debating our new year's resolutions and we weren't really sure what to do. Um, and we were like, what if we could trigger some kind of ripple effect where by collecting a bag of trash, we could inspire other people to do it. So that day we got home and we set up this goal and we thought it'd be a cool project to do with our kids. And we, we, we came up with this hashtag, just one bag 2020 mm-hmm. said, what if everyone just picked up a bag of litter when they were out exploring? So we got on Instagram and we stuck up a photo and every day through January, whether it was like minus 20, uh, it was pretty cold out here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we went out and collected a bag of trash and no one joined in and all of our neighbors thought we were crazy. <laughs> and then a neighbor joined in and then someone at work joined in because I kept talking about it. And by the end of the month, we had like a hundred bags we'd set ourselves a goal of 2020 bags by the end of the year, mm. but we hit that in April wow. and we're now seven months in and we've had 9,700 bags of litter collected around the world as part of this campaign by more than 500 people across 35 countries wow. and 37 <laughs> U S states. So I, I guess sometimes the, one of the reasons I started it was because I think I was feeling a bit overwhelmed by there's so much going on in the world that I can't help or mm-hmm. impact. And and this has kind of given me a bit of hope that actually like one person can, it sounds super cheesy, but like one person can yeah. make a difference. And I, I kind of feel like if we could apply that to the businesses we're part of, if we kind of apply that to some of the things around racial inequality and what's not working at work, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of given me something to cling to actually at, during dark moments during the pandemic where I've been like, I'm just going to go and pick up a bag of trash yeah. and hope someone else maybe gets inspired to do the same. Yeah. And that's, I know it's, it's helped keep me going. That's such a powerful image. And it reminds me of the image of, you know, you, you get one person with a candle who lights, you know, in a sea of people and they, they just, one person lights another, another candle and then everyone starts lighting other, other candles. And you start to see just a tremendous exponential impact of just one person starting it off. And I think, you know, uh, it, it reminds me of this idea of just a culture of one, that if we really want change, this is something my father-in-law told me when we first started having kids. He said, Steve, if I wanted my kids to change, I needed to change first. So if I wanted to change my culture, whether it's in my team, my company, or even in industry, it starts with me. Yeah, it's so, it's so powerful. And I think it's something that I've realized more and more. And it's it's both sort of freeing and maybe a burden because you realize that as a leader, the way you show up and what you do sets the tone. And, yeah. and, um, and, and I think it's back to yeah, being intentional that what, what you do, other people look to you and, and then start to do it. And if, if, if you do the right stuff, other people will tend to do the right stuff. And if you do the wrong stuff, people would do the wrong stuff. Uh, so, I mean, 
it's all pretty simple when you boil it down. Yeah. But again, we're humans and we're messy and we make it complicated. Yeah. Um, so it's another reason why I've been excited about this campaign because amidst the complexity of life and work, there's something nice about having something so simple to focus on. It's like being back in my book selling days. All I had to do was knock on a door and see if they wanted to buy books. I didn't have to think about everything else going on in the world right now. Yeah. And I think we all need that because it's kind of, it's easy to be overwhelmed by by the state of things right now. And that can become paralyzing. Well, I love it. That has been very inspirational, Phil. I appreciate you coming on the show. If there's uh, folks that people want to learn more about your work at C-Space and just you in general, where can they go? Um, so, uh, the best place is LinkedIn and, um, maybe a cheeky plug. If anyone wants to get involved and go out and collect a bag of litter for us anywhere in yes. the world, uh, then, um, they can find us at just one bag 2020 on Instagram. Uh, that would, that would please my wife. That would be awesome. All right. Yeah. We'll conclude in, in the show notes for sure. So we'll make sure that people get that message. Thank you, Phil, for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Culture Design Show. We'll see you again next time. Be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes. And while you're at it, feel free to leave a review of the podcast. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.